dangerous, I think, in many ways to pray, but we will trust God together. Hebrews chapter 4, I want to read verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Hear the word of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, the most important thing here to the author of Hebrews and thus to God is that we enter his rest. Okay, verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest. And just let me as an aside make a connection here. And that is when I say what's important to the author of Hebrews and therefore to God, I mean that. It's important for us to understand that. That what the author of Hebrews is saying here is what God is saying. That this word is through this human author but yet it's coming from God through him to these folks and to us and all generations, you see, um, infallibly, that is truthfully, inerrantly, that is without any error. Uh, And so when we listen to this word, we're listening to God, which is why we're so deliberate in listening to the scripture and reading the scripture. We don't read the scripture so that we can all become Bible scholars. That isn't the goal. The goal in our reading of scripture, our study of scripture, is that we would know God. And so, in order to know him, we need to listen to the scripture. And we need to listen well. And as we listen well, it means we need to learn to read this book. And so, that's why we spend so much time here. That's why we're so picky and deliberate about everything that we do as we come to the scripture. Because we're listening to God. And so, what's important to God here is that we enter his rest. If that's not important to you at this moment then your priorities, if I could say this kindly, are wrong. Because what should be important to us is what's important to God. What's important to Him is that we enter that rest. And this rest of God, the reason it's important to enter is because it means everything. And what it means is that this is the very place of God, the very presence of God. You remember when when Genesis, book of Genesis, first book in the Old Testament, book of beginnings, when it tells us about creation, We learn that the first six days of creation, uh, God worked and created. But on the seventh day, he rested. And on that seventh day, there's no end, if you will. If you're reading through that first chapter of Genesis, you read on the first day, the evening and morning were the first day. Second day, evening and morning were the second day. We come to the seventh day, and it simply says that God's rested. It doesn't say anything about an evening and a morning. Because, you see, on that seventh day, God rested from his creation. And in a sense found himself enthroned, was enthroned over all that he had made to rule over it all. And that seventh day, you see, that that rest of God is where he no longer creates but rules over it all. And so he's given us a day in seven, a Sabbath, wherein we're to commemorate, we're to understand, we're to reflect upon the fact and enjoy the fact that he's the creator and rules over all. And not only that, he gave to ancient Israel what we call the fourth commandment, to take this seventh, this Sabbath day, and it would be a sign that they belong to God. That on that seventh day, that Sabbath day, they would rest. 
as a sign that they were trusting in God, living in His presence, being provided for by Him, not having to work on that day, being provided for by Him, uh, being protected by Him, uh, being accepted by Him, living in His very presence. And so you see, this rest of God means that we're, we live in His presence. We live under His gracious rule. That we live by His provision. That we live under His protection. And we understand that in Christ, then, as Christians to mean that we're accepted by Him because of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven because of Jesus. It means that we're justified, that we're declared righteous in His sight because of Jesus. We're adopted into His family. We belong to Him. And we live in the presence looking for a secure future. And that secure future is to live forever in His presence after we die in heaven, after the return of Jesus on a renewed earth, and there we'll live together in the very presence of God. And you see, this is everything to enter that rest. If we miss it, we miss everything. If we gain the whole world and miss this, then we have nothing. Because you see, the opposite of entering his rest, that is, not entering his rest, means hell. It means that we don't live in the presence, the gracious presence of God. But the presence of God in which we live in is the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the condemnation of God. And so the urgency here, the passion here, the tension here is that if we miss this, we've missed everything. And so when he says strive to enter that rest, this is no soft, casual recommendation. This means everything. So you get a sense, I get the sense, that as the author of Hebrews writes this, and this is completely speculative, don't go anywhere with this, that he's, he's shaking. I mean, there's a, there's a sense of passion here, that, that his pen is, is harder on the whatever it is that he's writing on uh, than it was in other lines. I mean, this enter, strive, you get the feeling. Strive to enter that rest. And again, the tension here is because he knows of a people who were very close to entering that rest, who didn't. And he remembers the history of ancient Israel and the Hebrew people as they were leaving Egypt and going presumably to the land of promise, this land of milk and honey, this land of rest, this place where there would be rest from want, this place where there would be rest from war. And he knows that people and he begins to, con- to, to think about them and meditate upon them and he realizes they were delivered from Egypt and on the way, in the midst of their travel, they didn't believe. They disobeyed God. And they said, we don't want to go there. We want to go back. Because this road seems too hard. Because God took them before this Red Sea. And they couldn't cross over it. And that he enabled them to cross miraculously. And he took them to a place where there was no food. And they began to grumble about that. And he gave them food. And and then they took them to a place where there was no water. And they began to grumble about that. And he gave them water. But God eventually said, you've tested me to the point where now you said you want to go back, you don't want to go on, so none of you will enter. And they all died in the wilderness. Now why? Why did they die? Notice verse 11, chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. They disobeyed. Now the question is, what's the essence of that disobedience? Chapter 3, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See, the very essence of disobedience is unbelief. You see, when you're disobeying God, it means you're following someone, something other than God. And that's unbelief. You're saying, God's wrong, this is right. And so, in their minds, their disobedience was because they couldn't trust. And so their grumbling was because they couldn't trust. Their desire to go back from whence they came, back into slavery, into those horrible conditions that caused them to cry out to God in the first place, They wanted to go back there because they didn't really believe that God could take them to this rest. And so he says, you can't enter unless you trust me. And so you see, for us now, it's laid out like this. The author of Hebrews is telling us this, saying, listen, the most important thing is for you to enter into this rest, for you to live in the very presence of God under his protection, provision, his gracious rule, accepted by him, sins forgiven, justified, adopted, with the expectation, the hope, that a day will come when you will live in his immediate presence where you will be there for all of eternity. You see, the the little word we use there is eternal life, isn't it? And that doesn't mean uh, only a duration of time, but a quality of life, a quality of time. That we're in his presence, we belong to him, we're living his way, under him. And so the author of Hebrews said, enter that rest. Now, in order to enter that rest, you must believe. And he's telling us very openly and very honestly, in order to enter that rest, you must strive to enter that rest. Now, somehow, we've gotten it into our minds that believing in Jesus is easy. But he's saying... Be diligent about believing in Jesus. In fact, as we've been reading through this whole letter, he's been saying, pay closer attention to this word. He's been saying, take care, lest there be found in you an an evil, unbelieving heart. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. Encourage each other daily so that none of you may be taken captive, if you will, or fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. He said, listen, Be careful. Take care. Be diligent about this. And so he's saying, listen, there needs to be a diligence to your faith because it's that belief that enables you to enter the rest. Now this gave birth to two questions, one of which I answered a couple of weeks ago before I left out. So I want to review that very quickly and then answer the second question. The first question that this raised was this. If belief is so important and if we have to strive in faith, if you will, that if it's not easy, then do I have to worry about losing faith? I mean, do I have to worry all the time about my faith disappearing? And the answer to that question that I gave was, no. We don't need to live in, live in the fear of losing faith any more than Kansans need to live in the fear of tornadoes. You remember that. Now, tornadoes are real, and tornadoes are dangerous. But we don't have to live in the fear of them so long as... Our understanding of them leads us to rush to the safety of good weather forecasts and basements. But if we don't run to the safety of weather for good weather forecasts and basements, 
then we'll live in fear. And the same is true in the context of our faith. When the temptation to disbelieve God comes, and we feel that, we should run to the safety of faith. Now, the second question. The second question is, if we're to strive to enter that rest, meaning something about our faith and being diligent about it, in what does that striving consist? In other words, what does that look like? What does that striving look like? What does it look like to strive to enter that rest? For instance, if you're a student, I might say to you, strive to graduate, especially if I'm paying your tuition. Strive to graduate. And you might say, what does that look like? <laughs> Being a student, of course, not knowing what that would mean. Uh, you would say, what does it mean to strive to graduate? I would say, study and go to class. Being the student that you are, you would look at me going, never thought of that. But, but, but that's, you see, that's the way one strives. Striving to graduate consists of studying and going to class. Now, when Karen and I do our premarital deal in the springtime, we uh, meet with couples and we might say, strive to be a good husband, strive to be a good wife. And, and you might, they might say, what does that look like? And you say, well, in striving to be a good husband, to be a good wife, means to, to love, to be diligent about love, to be diligent about compassion, to be dil- diligent about, about communication. That's what it means to strive to be a good husband, to be a good wife. If, if you're an athlete, you might... Your coach may say, strive to win. You say, what does that look like? And he'd say, well, practice hard and learn the plays and all of those kinds of things. As a business person, strive to make a profit. What does that look like? Well, to do all the things that business people do, to be diligent about that in order to make a a profit. And so now we come as believers and we're told to strive to enter into this rest. So the question is, what's that look like? And what does our striving consist? Right? And then verse 12 comes upon us with the little connecting word, the word for, F-O-R. See, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is. You see, right on the heels of this striving, the author of Hebrews brings to the fore this message of God, this word of God. He's saying, listen, when you strive, it will consist of its being diligent about this word. I mean, that's what he's been telling us all along. Play, pay closer attention. Listen to all that you've heard. See, the reason that the ancient Hebrews didn't enter into the promised land was because they didn't believe the word. Check out chapter 4 and verse 1. He writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news... Alright? Good news. For good news came to us just as to them. The them there is these ancient Hebrews. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message, or literally the word they heard, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You see, they didn't enter because they didn't believe this message, this word of God. So our striving consists of being diligent to believe this word. Now, is there any help here for us? Is there anything in this passage that's going to give us confidence and so this will, this will actually work? And of course the answer is yes, because it says, for the word of God is living and active. 
See, it isn't just a simple dead word. It's, it's living and active. It works. And, and we, see the, we see the outworking of this word of God even as we open up the scripture. And we found that, that God spoke everything into existence. That is, his very word is powerful simply to say, let there be light. And if God says, let there be light, there can be no darkness. Right? If he says, let there be light, there is light. Because his word communicates his will. In fact, in chapter 1 in Hebrews, we read of Jesus that he sustains the universe by the very word of his power. That is, if Jesus stops speaking, everything ceases to exist. Can you imagine that? Having your word carry that power and authority. I'm a dad. I don't think my word means much at all sometimes. You know what I mean? I, I say stuff, people look at me like, ugh. Present company excluded, I suppose. But, the, um, but see, this is the very power of God. He says it, it happens. The call to worship that I'm sure you're all paying attention to. Out of Isaiah, very familiar verses to us. From Isaiah 55, don't turn to this unless you're really quick. Uh, verse... 10, he writes, For as the rain and snow came down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He said, listen, this is what happens when it rains. When it rains, the rain works. When it rains, things grow. And so he says, Then so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why? Because it's alive and it's active. It'll do it because it's the very word of God. Now, just as an aside, this is not necessary for this sermon, but it's helpful for you. The rest of this passage is awesome. Here's that word that God speaks. Don't ever miss this when you read this passage. He says, For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. When God speaks to his people, when he speaks to you and me, and you need to remember this, just a little sermonette here, when times are tough, when life is difficult, Remember what God has said about you. He says, you shall go out in joy. And you shall be led forth in peace. And you're thinking, I don't feel joyful. I don't see peace. I don't feel it. But God has said it. And his word will accomplish it. And it may not happen to your, you know, ascending into glory. But you shall go out in joy. Don't worry. You will have a good ending no matter what your present. For you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yay, Bill. Come on, buddy. You know? The mountains. I was just in the mountains. And I, nobody clapped for me. There's mountains just that they're like rocks. But, but he says, that's what's going to happen. And the trees of the field shall clap your hands. All of creation be rooting for you as you go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Uh, the, they shall break forth into singing. Instead of the thorns shall come the cypress. She'll be driving along and, and, and all the weeds will just be beautiful flowers all of a sudden. Um, and God will be glorified. You see, that's the word he's spoken. That's just a little sermon. But see, the point is that God's word is powerful. It will accomplish that for which it has been been sent because it's alive. And notice, he says, for the word of God is living and active. And he says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the reason the emphasis on the two-edged sword figuratively is simply this. It says, there isn't a dull place on this sword. 
It cuts everywhere. Nothing can get in its way. You can't be cutting on the wrong side. When it goes, it goes. It penetrates because it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So sharp, so penetrating is it that it, it penetrates, it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. Now, the purpose for which the author of Hebrews wrote this isn't to send us on some wild goose chase of what's the difference between our soul and our spirit, but to be able to let us realize that that would be a hard question, wouldn't it? What would be the difference between soul and spirit, really? Both immaterial, can't see either, don't touch either. How would you even divide stuff you can't see? Ah, that's the point. It can go places, this word of God, that nothing else can go. To, to, to divide joint and, and marrow. How do you do that with a knife? I mean, what, what can really happen there? He says, no, no, it penetrates. It penetrates deeper than anything else. So deep, he says now, down to the nitty-gritty of it, so deep as that it is able to discern or judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says it goes right into your heart. And of course, when we talk about our hearts, it's not meaning this thing in here that's beating. He's talking about you, the very essence of you, who you really are. I mean, really, would not you be willing to say that there are times when you don't even know your own heart? Yeah, most of the time. There are times when you don't know the heart of your spouse. It's difficult to know the heart of another person. We can fool each other all the time. You know that. You fool people all the time. And you're fooled by people all the time. And you rather like that. Because you really don't want to know what's in their heart. So if they say they're fine, they're fine. And that's just fine. And you'll get on with your day. Um, We fool each other all the time, don't we? And we don't know what's in our heart. I'm thinking, too, of this passage in in, uh, Jeremiah that you know, in Jeremiah chapter 17, where Jeremiah speaks of the heart. He writes this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's really true. Who can understand what's in the human heart? I was watching a a Law and Order the other day, and uh, I have to confess... Not hard to watch. They're on 18 times a day. But, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I mean, it's just every time you turn around, you hear that noise, you know, in the criminal justice system. Um, but I was watching this mock trial, obviously, and I'm thinking how hard it is to know the truth, really, about a person. I mean, what's really in there? I know that about myself. I know that about my wife. I know that about my kids. I know that about you. I know that in context of counseling. I know that part of the struggle in, in the counseling process sometimes is to try to figure out, try to discern, try to understand what's really in there and how it got there. And, and, and Jeremiah says, of course, who can understand the heart? And then the next verse is, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. God says, I know it. And you see, the Word of God is such because it's truth. The Word of God is such and it's alive and it's active and it penetrates deep within the very recesses of our souls and the darkest places where nothing else has ever gone for understanding, you see. And it knows exactly who we are. It knows exactly our thoughts. He knows exactly our intentions. He knows exactly our desires. He knows not only what we know cognitively, but He knows what we love and what we hate 
what we despise, what we favor. He knows our affections and disaffections towards everything. I mean, that's the very nature of the heart. And God says, I know all of that. And when the Word of God goes there, He says, this is what happens. You're laid bare. You're naked. You're exposed before Him. He says, because no creature is hidden from His eyes. No creature is hidden from His eyes. But all are naked and exposed in the sight of Him, in the eyes of Him, to whom we all must give account. See, God is like that. He knows exactly what's going on in the very recesses of our hearts. And it's the Word of God that brings that light. It's the Word of God that penetrates all of that. It's this very message. And He said, listen, what your striving consists of, what your striving consists of is this Word of God penetrating your heart and you listening. This Word of God penetrating your heart and you are paying attention to what it's doing there. That's what your striving consists of. If you want to strive to enter that rest, then immerse yourself in the Word of God and let it penetrate. Let it penetrate your life. And what it's penetrating, to find, to assess, to judge, to discern, is not simply what's sin in there and what isn't sin in there, but to discern in you and to discern in me what is belief and unbelief. Where are we believing God? Where aren't we believing God? Because you see, that's the very point. The very point of entering His rest is believing. And so this Word of God comes, you see, and it penetrates deep within us to find those places of unbelief so they can be exposed. Because you realize that we face the promises of sin every day. I mean, sin works by way of promises. It promises us satisfaction and joy and happiness. In fact, I was thinking about this, so I wrote, began to write ways that sin uh, has made promises to us, to me. I came up with 17. I think I'm about four and a half million short. All right? So in your own life, you can probably make this list. Let me just read some of these ones, the way that sin makes promises to us. First, sin promises that if you lie your life will be more prosperous and you'll be better accepted by others. I mean, you reach those situations, you go, oh, if only I don't tell the truth here. If only I lie here, then they'll like me better because if they knew the truth, they wouldn't like me. So I'll lie or, or this will get me out of that. And so sin comes and says, oh, if you lie, things will go better. Sin promises students that if you cheat on a test, you'll be more successful. And that if you don't cheat, you won't ever get that job. And sin holds that lie out and says, cheat, it'll be better for you. Sin promises that if you lose your temper and express it rather than to live a life of disciplined meekness, you'll be less likely to be taken advantage of by others and more likely to get your own way. And of course, that's good. That's what sin tells us. Sin promises girls and women that if you lower your standards for dress and dress more provocatively, that you'll be more popular, be considered more fashionable, and will attract men. And that promises that that will be good. Sin promises businessmen and women that if you go along with unscrupulous or unethical practices at your workplace, you'll have job security. But if you raise any issues, you won't. Sin promises that if you have an abortion, your future will be better. Sin promises parents that what is most important for your kid is to be popular in school, athletic, get good grades, and if these are true, everything else will be good. Sin promises kids that... Uh, Promises kids that if you're popular at school, then life will be good. Sin promises that if you give in to your inclination toward homosexual behavior, that you'll be more fulfilled in life. Sin promises that if you pursue divorce, that your life will once again have meaning and your future will be happy. 
Sin promises that if you continue to accumulate for yourself, even though it means that you don't give as God instructs and that you neglect those who are in need around you, that you'll live a satisfied and content, prosperous life. Sin promises that if you give into your lust and engage in sexual intimacy outside of marriage, that no one will be hurt and you'll be satisfied. Sin promises that if you aren't sexually intimate with your boyfriend, you'll lose him. Sin promises that if you seek the praise of people, you'll be happy. Sin promises that if you live up to the standards you set for yourself, that if you like yourself, that if you're content with how your life is, that God is happy with you too. Sin promises that if we do our best and try to make amends for all the wrongs we've done, then we can die well. You see, those are all lies. But isn't it amazing how in certain circumstances those lies look so good? And we actually believe them. And you see, when we're living in these lies, we're not living in the rest that God gives. And so he says, strive to live to enter in that rest. And how do you do that? By means of the Word of God. And so we go to the Word of God and it begins to penetrate in the context of our lives. And it says, don't lie. That won't be better for you. That's, that's, that's a lie, that lie to lie. That's a lie. Tell the truth. Don't cheat. That isn't the way to make your life be better. Don't get that abortion. Don't follow through on that divorce. Don't think that the standards you set for yourself are sufficient, that God will go along with them, and as long as you think you're a good person, everything's fine. Don't think that the most important thing in life is to be popular. Don't think the most important thing in life for your kids is that they get good grades and are socially acceptable and nice, clean-cut kids and all that kind of thing. Don't think that's the be-all and end-all of that. Don't think that's the most important thing. That's a lie. You see, the Word of God comes and it penetrates deep in the midst of that. And it doesn't just come into us and say to us, Oh, you dirty, rotten sinner. Which is true, but that isn't its primary point. Its primary point is to to find these areas of unbelief in us and then to reflect the truth of God and say, This is true. Believe it. Let me give you a silly illustration. When I was a little boy, um, I noticed <clears throat> that deep in the recesses of my mother's pantry were these little foil-wrapped cubes. And what I knew was in foil-wrapped cubes was fudge. So I saw these foil-wrapped cubes. They were this little box in my mother's pantry deep where it was too dark to read the name of the box. And I knew she was hiding them from me because all my life women have hidden fudge from me. And, uh, and so I knew she was hiding them. And so when no one was looking, I reached back in the dark recesses of that pantry and I pulled these full wrapped cubes and I unwrapped them. I shoved them in my mouth real quickly. And then I realized they had lied to me. Um, for they were bullion cubes. Um, and, and it was really bad, as you might suspect, because I've learned that a bullion cube is a concentrated stock for making broth. And then I did the stupid thing, which is I, rather than just spit them out, I drank a bunch of water, which then I meant I had a bunch of very thick, cold soup in my mouth, which was more horrible than the first. But you see, that's what sin does, isn't it? It wraps things up in the dark 
and this nice foil that shines. And we think, oh, I know what that is. That'll make me happy. That'll fulfill my life. That'll guarantee my future. That'll make everything right. All that I've ever wanted will come true. And we begin to go in those dark areas of our hearts, the thoughts and intentions where there's really unbelief, but we don't know it even because sin is deceitful. And we pick up all of these shiny foil cubes and we stick them in our pocket and we can't wait to get them in our mouths. And we rush off. And if it's too late, we realize they've lied to me. Sin has lied to me. It's deceived me. This really isn't true. My life isn't better. This isn't my future. This isn't what I've been longing for all the days of my life. This really is death to me. And see, the Word of God comes in the midst of all that and it penetrates deep down within that. As we immerse ourselves in God's Word, as we're diligent after it, to listen to it and to take care about it and all of that. And it comes and it exposes that unbelief. But it simply doesn't say those are horrible uh, foil cubes. Don't take them. It says, leave them. Take this. Now the religious word, the theological word, the biblical word for that is repentance. As the Word of God comes and penetrates down in the very recesses of our hearts and exposes unbelief, then comes this call of God to turn away from that and trust, to turn away and believe. As the ancient Israelites, God continually came to them and says, Look what I've done. You came against the Red Sea and you grumbled. I opened it. You walked through on dry land amazingly. You didn't have any food. I gave you manna. You wanted meat. I gave you quail. You didn't have any water. It came from a rock. Won't you believe me? I've taken you all those dark places with a temptation to not believe with a lie of sin said God isn't taking me anywhere good. God isn't taking me into his rest but he's brought me here to die. We've been better off as slaves and die in Egypt. You see, the message of God, the word of God, striving to enter the rest of God consists of our being diligent to listen to this Word of God. There was a day that the Apostle Peter was preaching. It was a classic day, a famous day, the day of Pentecost. And on that particular day, as he came to the end of his sermon, the Scripture says that the people that were cut to the heart And they looked at Peter and the apostles and they said, Brothers, what should we do? They said, Repent. Turn away from your unbelief and believe. Some years later, there was another group of people. They were listening to a great saint of the church, of the early church named Stephen. And he preached a sermon very similar to what Peter had laid out. Same ideas, same truth. And at the end of that sermon, the scripture said that they were enraged at him. And they killed him. See, the word of God is such that that, that we simply can't remain neutral as it penetrates deep within the context of our hearts and exposes unbelief. It will either move us to repentance or will make us very angry and move us away from God. I don't know about you, but there are times in the context of my life that when I read the scripture, I get really angry. 
because it's running completely counter to what I would really like to do. I mean, it's laying bare all my thoughts and inclinations. But yet there's a sense in that being angry that I know still it's right. And I give in. I say, this is right. I'm wrong. And the Bible calls me to love even my enemies. I want to say, but, 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 but God, you don't know what they've done to me. And then somehow Jesus appears and shows me the scars. And I say, okay, you've, you know what they've done. And he said, I, I loved you. Okay. Because at that moment in time, you see, it seems so much easier to hate my enemies. And the word of God then comes and penetrates deep and says, that's unbelief. You're thinking that hating your enemies will make your life better, will enable you to enter this rest. No, 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 no. You must love them. Oh. And on and on, you see, we could go. Because everyone's life is laid bare by the Word of God, if not right now, later. I mean, everyone will be evaluated by the Word of God in this day or the next, or this life or the next. No other opinion will matter. When we face God... His word will be spoken. His word will appear. His word will be manifested in the context of our lives. It will appear into the depths of our hearts. It will expose everything that's there. And you may say, well, God, how about measuring me by my own standards? No. God, how about measuring me by my pastor's standards? No. How about measuring me by my society standards? No. How about measuring by, by my professor's standards? No. How about measuring me by my parents' standards? No. The only word that matters is God's. And that's why the author of Hebrews comes and says, don't play games with God. You can fool yourself, you can fool someone else, but you're not going to fool him. Be diligent about this word. Let this word penetrate. One of the most refreshing things that can happen to me as a pastor, well, that isn't true. How do I say this? Let me just tell you what happens. When people come into my office and say, I'm not a Christian, I go, okay, let's talk. I mean, it's refreshing in the sense that at least they understand that. At least they, they understand who they are. I, I, I'm more like it when someone walks in and says, I love Jesus, but that's a whole other thing, if it's true. But, but, but you know what I mean. I mean, that's the thing about, about this honesty, about not playing games, about being diligent about this Walk with God. So I want to lay out the message. I want to lay out this word. And if God is true, and I believe that he is, then I believe this word will penetrate. And I believe as this word penetrates, it will expose in you and me areas of belief, unbelief. And when it does, the call to us, where unbelief is exposed is to repent and to come to him. You remember, it was the night in which Jesus was betrayed. At that point in time, he took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, what we're to think about when we consider this is this good news, this message of God's rest. Wherein we understand by the word of God that we realize that we're sinners. That God created us in his image. He created us to glorify him. He created us to reflect him. He created us to honor him at every turn. And all of that he deserves. This isn't something imposed on us. This is something that's, that's quite right. It's exactly the way it should be. The very holy God of the universe who made us deserves our adoration, deserves our love. And in his perfection, he deserves our following him at every turn. But yet the word of God comes to us and says that you're cast from my presence, you're under my wrath because you've sinned against me. You haven't honored me as you should. That's the very word. And then the word comes on top of that in Christ that says, though you deserve this penalty, this condemnation, this wrath, because I love I'll put sin upon my son. He'll take in his passion the penalty for your sin. And if you believe, if you trust him, then you'll enter my rest. If you place your hold upon him, if you place your all upon him, if you trust in him alone, then you enter, you see. You believe. And this rest, this eternal life is yours. You see, that's the message. And so when this table is set, as you know, I I invite you to come here. And though, though this is just bread and juice, we believe that God sets it apart in a particular way that enables us to enjoy the very presence of Jesus. And he invites to this table those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy, who believe in Jesus and him alone as he's offered to us in the gospel, Savior of sinners, and who desire to follow after him. I mean, that's who is invited to this table. And what I want to say today is that if you don't believe that, don't come. Nobody's going to step on your toes as they walk over you. No one's going to look back with a scowl on their face as, oh, why aren't you coming? We all sat in your seat one day, but we didn't believe and found ourselves on another day believing. So just sit there. That's all right. But be honest. As, as best you know your heart as it's been exposed by this word. And you may surprise others who may think you're a Christian because you've been coming for years, or you've been doing this, or you've been doing that. But this moment, as this word is laid out, you really say, I just don't believe that. That's not my hope. That's not my heart. Don't come. Now, I encourage you, by the mercies of God, to deal with that unbelief. To allow the word of God to immerse yourself in it, to to penetrate deeper and deeper and deeper and not just expose your unbelief but to bring faith because it may be for some of you that you listen to that and you said you know if you'd asked me this yesterday or last week I wouldn't have gone but today I believe that 
that understand that the Word of God has penetrated. It's brought light. And it said, you know that little bullion cube you've been having in your pocket? Take it out and throw it away. Because here's the truth. You go, oh yes. I believe that. Now for the rest of us, for those of us who believe, we're, we're, we're Christians, yet the Word of God we know penetrates deep and still there's areas of unbelief. There's areas where we <clears throat> know that we're not following Christ. And it's clear to us. Take out that little foil ball, that little foil cube, throw it away. Follow it. And as you come, then, come trusting, believing, pronouncing. Do you believe in Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you say your word is powerful. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, we understand that no creature can hide from your sight. That all of us are naked and exposed by your eyes, by this word. And you're the one to whom we must make account. So I pray, Father, that in this moment you would bring clarity to everyone here. I pray that you bring faith where it isn't, repentance where it needs to come. In Jesus' name, amen.